Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves, your host for tonight's show. This broadcast will be featuring Charlie Craven, and he'll be answering your questions on tying streamers. The show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask Charlie a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. And while you're there, make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. You'll see a form in the right column of our website. Just fill in your name and email address, and we'll let you know when the next show is available. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about 48 hours after the show ends. You can also find it on any of the podcast distribution sites like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, Feedspot, Player FM, or any of the other platforms you might be using. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website at, or any of the distribution platforms at your convenience and listen to the recording at any time. If you're out and about on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, we'd sure appreciate it if you share our podcast. And when you do, use the hashtag AskAboutFlyFishing. In fact, if you have a moment, do it right now. We have some links right there on the homepage. You can use those links and uh, share, share the knowledge out there. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted and is the property of the Knowledge Group Inc. doing business as Ask About Fly Fishing. Douglas Outdoors is a manufacturer of premium quality fly rods, raising the expectations that anglers should expect in componentry, design, engineering, craftsmanship, and in turn performance. Led by head rod designer Fred Contui, Douglas has achieved award-winning rods featuring eye-opening strength-to-weight ratios and dialed-in technique-specific actions and tapers that cater to a host of different species. Douglas Outdoors has a truly deep lineup of rods ranging from 12 weights for monster tarpon to two weights for tiny brook trout and everything else in between. Check them out at douglasoutdoors.com. Again, that's douglasoutdoors.com. Before we introduce Charlie, we'd like to let you know about the great prizes we have to give away tonight. On our drawing tonight, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. So you have two chances to win tonight in our drawing. Now, if you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage, which is at askaboutflyfishing.com, and look for the link under Charlie's section that says click here to register for our drawing. Click on that link, fill out the form, and we'll announce the winners at the end of the show. We'll also be giving away a copy of Charlie's latest book, Tying Streamers. So here's how you can win Charlie's book. You must be the first person to answer the question we ask at the end of the show. The question will be about something that Charlie and I talk about during the show. And it might be a two-part question, depending on how I'm feeling or thinking or whatever. So pay attention, take notes, and uh, be fast with your typing skills. And maybe you'll win Charlie's book, Tying Streamers, which is uh, courtesy of Stackpole Books. So... Um, if you'd like to learn more about what Stackpole has to offer, you can go to stackpolebooks.com and check out all the publications they have. So have fun there. Our guest tonight is Charlie Craven. Charlie owns Charlie's Fly Box, a fly shop in Arvada, Colorado, and is a top-selling signature fly designer for Umpqua Feather Merchants. Charlie is the fly tires bench columnist for Fly Fisherman Magazine and author of Charlie Craven's Basic Fly Tying, Modern Techniques for Flies That Catch Fish, Charlie's Fly Box, Signature Flies for Fresh and Salt Water, Tying Nymphs, uh, Essential Flies and Techniques for the Top Patterns and Tying Streamers, 
which we'll talk about tonight, uh, Essential Flies and Techniques for the Top Patterns. He's also featured in recent Fly Fisherman magazine DVDs, Warm Water Fly Tying and Salt Water Fly Tying. He lives in Palmer Lake, Colorado with his wife, Lisa, and two giant dogs and a slew of children. So, hey, Charlie, welcome back to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. Roger, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, and it's not the first time. That's why I say welcome back to Charlie. He's uh, We've done three other shows with Charlie, which you, which you can find in our archive. One called Tying Nymphs, uh, Advanced Flying Techniques, and Fly Tying Techniques You Can't Do Without. So just search the archive for Craven, C-R-A-V-E-N, and you'll see all the shows that Charlie and I have done together in the past. So, uh, so this will be number four, Charlie. And uh, it looks like it's going to be fun because we've got a lot, a lot of questions. You ready? Oh. I'm ready, man. I'm looking forward to it. Okay, so um, here we go. Um, Steve Hansen in uh, in Lincoln, Nebraska says, uh, "Hi, Charlie. I fish with uh, woolly boogers a lot, and bluegills and bass tend to tear them up quickly. Is there a way to make them more durable? The the hackle seems to go away first. Any ideas for him? Yeah, uh, for sure. The uh, you know a bugger is a great pattern, but yeah, the hackle is the liability on it for sure. So um, you know, counter wrapping the hackle with a wire rib, and uh, I, th you know, I think I saw a question that's coming up uh, that this will probably cover as well. But uh, you know, tying wire in at the bend, and then wrapping the chenille body, and tying the hackle in at the front, and palmering it back, and then wrapping the wire forward through the hackle uh, will help reinforce that stem. And you know, even if it gets broken in between there, it's still held down on on either side by that wire. So that makes a you know significant difference in the durability of you know, Palmer tackle on, on almost anything. Elk or caddis has done the same way. Hmm. I see that in a lot of um, uh, fly tying uh, videos lately, the, the counter wrapping with wire or whatever, even thread, uh, seems sure. to be real popular nowadays, yeah. Yeah, um, and there was a question on, on Palmer tackle. Uh, I've seen Palmer tackle tied in the hook bend and then wrapped forward and then from the eye and, and wrapped back. What are the advantages of disadvantages of each? You know, the disadvantage of tying it in by the tip at the butt end uh, or, the you know, by the tip of the feather at the back end of the hook um, is that you don't have that reinforcement. So um, I do, you know, you know, personally, I do think that it wraps more nicely from back to front. Um, you know, the feather, you can kind of fold the feather and make a, a prettier fly, but the durability isn't near as good as when you, you counter wrap it with wire. You know, one of, the, one of the things that I do on some of my streamers is, you know, I'll do it over a... Uh, a dubbed body or you know soft ragged body so the the hackle stem could kind of bury down in there and that does contribute to some some durability but the you know realistically the advantage is to the wire so tying the hackle in at the front and counter wrapping it with wire is probably the toughest way to do it mm -hmm, mm -hmm. well could you still use do it from back to front and leave your wire back there and wrap that forward too i mean you, you can you know it's it, it i find it's a little trickier because you've got to match the exact angle um, but yeah, you certainly oh. can, you know, especially especially countering. You know, you just you want to end up with that perfect X, so that the stem and yeah. the and the wire cross at about a 45 to each other. Otherwise, you end up binding a lot of hackle down. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. So uh, another question on relates to woolly boogers. Um, how do you select marabou? I've noticed that Hairline has a couple of different types of marabou than one they call woolly booger marabou. Um, what's your what's your thoughts on selection of marabou? You know, it really, it really depends on the job, you know, and what you're trying to do. And that's, you know, so much of fly tying is, you know, the right material for the job. So there are different 
uh, not even going to say different qualities, you know, obviously different qualities, but um, not so much different qualities as there are just different types. You know, woolly bugger marabou is short, uh, very thick, uh, thick-stemmed, thick-barbed uh, marabou feathers. It's like kind of the short, downy feathers that are closest to the skin. And they're very lively, but they've got a really thick stem, so they're unwrappable. They're not a feather that you can wrap. Um, but if you're peeling off fibers to make a tail or a multi-layered colored tail, uh, woolly bugger marabou works really nicely for that. It's got no center, you know, you use just the plume uh, or just the flue, so you're not using the center stem. So you can really kind of stack it and tie it in without creating a lot of bulk. You know, regular blood quill marabou does vary in quality for sure, even within the same bag. You know, marabou is not, um, you know, these days it's not near as good as it used to be. You know, back, I'm old now, so I can say back in the day when I was a kid, you know, marabou was, um, and I just found some the other day. I was going through some of my stuff. You know, that I used to get from Hobbs Feather Company. And the marabou, you know, from 20 years ago is markedly better than the stuff that is put out there today. And I don't know, I don't know why that is. I mean, turkeys didn't change that much in 20 years, I can't imagine. But the quality is just not the same. So the, you know, the best marabou feathers, um, I think, have a thin stem, you know, long fluffy flues on them, and are pretty consistently shaped. You know, in a, in a package of strung blood quill marabou, you'll, you'll find some that have got really thick quills, or thick quills halfway up that are just, you know, too thick to wrap. You know, mm -hmm. so I, I try to look for a feather that's, you know, optimal quality, but honestly, out of a package, you know, you might get half the pack that's that's really good stuff and the other half that you have to kind of, you know, use for something else. You know, it's not that it's unusable, yeah. it's just not usable for, for that particular job. Yeah, okay, good. Phil McCartney uh, in, in Kentucky wrote in, he says, I very much enjoy Charlie's videos uh, in tying this, swim coach, Charlie makes mallard feathers behave uh, as he palmers them around the hook despite their relatively thick stem. I'd like to know how Charlie decides when to palmer feathers on their own as he did with uh, mallard feathers versus cutting fibers from the stem and twisting the fibers in a dubbing loop. I'd also like to know how Charlie keeps fragile fibers like aftershaft feathers aligned in a dubbing loop prior to twisting the loop or reinforcement of the feathers prior to palmering? <laughs> long, long, long question. Uh, uh, yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, on mallard flank feathers, sort of the same thing that I just said about about the marabou feathers. You know, you've really got to kind of high grade through, you know, a lot of feathers. You know, one of my big tricks, and, you know, I, I talk about this in demos, one of my big tricks with mallard feathers is I take, you know, four or five bags of mallard feathers and I put them in a gallon Ziploc bag, and when I sit down to tie, I pour them all out on the table and I select the feathers ahead of time so I'm not hunting and picking for, for each one. And, and what I'm looking for is a thin stem. You know, the, the trick to, to wrapping a uh, mallard flank feather, you know, is A, tie it in by the tip, and, and B, you need a feather that's got, you know, a thin enough stem that it'll wrap without wanting to roll. Um, you know, everybody thinks of a, as the rachis of a feather, the center stem as being a round quill. Um, and it's really pretty square, you know, and you can, you can actually see that pretty clearly on a marabou feather. Um, they're fairly square. So if they're thick, you can see how they want to roll from, you know, from one flat edge to the next flat edge. So the smallest, thinnest ones are going to wrap the best. You know, as for putting the mallard flank feathers in a, in a dubbing loop, I don't do that much. And, and the reason is, is, is it doesn't keep the fibers aligned. Um, to kind of sweep back on the fly, they uh, change position from, you know, curve down to curve up and, and, and we'll, as they get twisted around in the dubbing loop. So I'm not a huge fan of that on that material because it's, it's asymmetrical. Um, you know, it's got an got a inside and an outside to the feather, and I generally want it to wrap outside out. Um, uh -huh. To the second part of that about uh, aftershaft feathers and how I would keep those aligned in a dubbing loop, um, 
you know, that's a there's there's a lot of tools these days to kind of help with dubbing loops and you know, and again, I'm, I'm enjoying being old. Now I'm going to turn 50 this year, so I, I have all kinds of stuff that I can say from experience. But I, I don't, you know, I've, I've learned to do all this stuff with my hands. And, you know, my tool is my index finger and middle finger of my right hand is what I use, you know, literally just like holding like scissor blades. Um, I'll put the material between my fingers and then set it into the loop so I really have ultimate control over it. Um, and the biggest part of that is how I can let go uh, once I get it in the loop with all the the little clips and, uh, you know, there's chip clips and magic tools and all kinds of little tools to, to put the material into a dubbing loop, but getting the tool off of the material has always been the catch. And, you know, once you, once you practice with anything, you'll get better at it for sure. You know, that, that includes the tools, but I've always done it with my fingers, and I, I find I have much better control with my fingers than I do, um, you know, with any, any of the tools. And, you know, I, I don't see... Uh, I see very few instances where I need the tool to make such a long dubbing loop of material. You know, on most trout flies anyway, um, you know, a couple inches of dubbing loop is plenty. Um, you know, everybody wants to make a, a dubbing loop that's, you know, six inches long, and it's most of the time it's just way more material than you need. So you're you're sort of fighting a battle that you don't need to fight. Okay, okay, good, good, great answers. Um, Dino in Michigan, it says, any insight on streaming materials or design as they apply to retrieve speed or water temperature? And I'm not sure if he's meaning like, you know, cold water versus, you know, 80 degrees salt water or what. But uh, can you shed any light on that? Yeah, I, w I would take that to, you know, the, the retrieve speed, um, you know, I do. You know, the, the whole, you know, everything about my fly tying these days is about design. So I'm always trying to solve a problem. Um, and, you know, I have flies that I like to fish fast and flies that I like to fish slow, and that depends on conditions um, and the mood of the fish. You know, sometimes fish don't want to chase. You know, sometimes they want to kind of just poke out and grab it. Um, you know, there's a lot of different kinds of streamer fishing, and as I travel around and do it in different places, there's, you know, rainbows and browns eat streamers completely differently and in different places. So, you know, I do build flies like the Dirty Hippie is a really good example of a fly that I tied to fish slowly. You know, it's not to say that it won't fish in fast water and I can't, you know, strip the fly quickly, but in slow water, I can really make that fly pulse and breathe, and it doesn't uh, just plummet to the bottom. You know, it, it's got some, some uh, surface area to it to kind of hold it up. Um, it, it can work well in, in slow or still water, where a fly like the Gonga is a fast strip fly. It doesn't fish, you know, it's very heavy. You know, it's weighted toward the eye, so it's, it's not a fly that you can fish, you know, very slowly very well. So, yes, the material and, and diameter, you know, slower sinking fly, often on a sink tip line, you know, for, for slower moving water, for faster water, I'll fish a weighted fly with a, a long leader and a floating line. So I, I do vary that design, you know, on purpose so that I've got a fly that stays where it needs to stay longer. Um, you know, fisher wanting to chase a fly, I want a fly that'll, that'll get down and stay down while I retreat it. Um, if I've got a fly that I want to kind of dance and kind of mend around in currents and pockets and things like that, you know, a fly like a dirty hippie with more surface area is going to be my choice there. And I think the water temperature has to do with, you know, the mood of the fish. If the fish are, you know, if the water's cold and they want to chase and they're, they're feeling happy about it, a faster-moving fly is probably a better bet. Slower, you know, slower, warmer water, um, a slower-moving fly is probably going to be better. What about um, water temperature on the materials themselves? Are there some materials that don't act well in cold water or warm water? Uh, not that I know of. Not that I've ever noticed. Okay. That'd be that'd be okay. interesting to pay attention to now, which I will. But yeah, I'm not not that I've ever noticed. No. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was thinking of you know trying to get that pulsing effect of 
the dirty hippie, you know, if that works differently or, or if temperature has nothing to do with it. I was thinking, I guess, yeah, I synthetic think... materials might react differently. But Yeah, that could be. Yeah, I mean, you know, northeast cold cold salt water kind of stuff, maybe, you know, entirely different movement. But, you know, frankly, I yeah. don't have much much experience with that. Yeah, yeah. Um, Bob in Maryland asks, uh, do you have a favorite technique for keeping materials from spinning on the hook when tying? Uh, thread base, absolutely, a thread base. Um, you know, it depends, again, it depends on the material. You know, it, it, there's, you know, there's always catches. You know, if you're specifically talking about deer hair, you know, as far as moving around, like trying to do a spun head and, and to get it to stop, a thread base makes, makes a huge difference. And, and generally a, a bigger, coarser thread base than what you would think. You know, when I tie a hair bug or a streamer head on, on a flat like Kelly Gallup's sex dungeon, I put a, put a pretty good thread base down and then I'll, I'll twist the thread up and, and go over the top of that thread base just to give a sort of a corrugated surface so the material's got something to stick to. Um, and then, of course, I, you know, you make sure that the wrap is all the way tightened down. I think people, especially with deer hair, get a little afraid to break their thread and, you know, pull on it at about 60% when you, you really want to be at about 95%, mm, okay. you know, of the breaking strength. So, you know, if your fly is, if your materials are spinning on the hook, you're probably not tying them down over a thread base and or uh, not tightly enough in the first place. When you're tying these big streamers, what thread are you using? Are you using 3-Opt or, or even... It, it, it varies with the fly, but, but uh, yeah, I'm a huge fan of the old Danville 3-aught monocord. Um, I use that in mm -hmm. a lot of places. You know, 6-aught six, unithread um, is actually the same size as Danville 3-aught. Danville um, they're both about 140 denier. I think uni is, is one, 135 denier. So I'm a big fan of both of those threads for, for most of my streamer work. You know, the, the deer hair head stuff, I'll use GSP thread. Uh, the Simperfly uh, GSP thread is the that's the best I found for the gel spun threads for for spinning deer hair, but for the most part I'd say, gosh, you know when I when I'm thinking about it I, I'd say 90 percent, 95 percent of my streamer tying is done with three out monocord or six out uni. Okay, okay, and didn't you um, was it for fly fishermen? You wrote an article on on threads not too long ago. I did. I wrote, yeah, it's yeah, been a it's year. Uh, yeah, it's a few years old now, maybe a couple, three years old, and, and honestly, that was, um, you know, that was something I've wanted to write about for a long time, and it took forever. You know, it was like doing a college thesis paper. I had to research it and really kind of delve into it, and, I, you know, I'm really proud of the yeah. way it came out. It's, it's uh, Thread is such a confusing thing in fly tying, and, you know, I've taught fly tying for so long, and I, I constantly answer questions about Thread. It's just so confusing for everybody. You know, that Thread article, as, as best I could, I tried to kind of explain what the differences are, and you know, it's almost, thread is almost purposely confusing between the manufacturers. Um, yeah, you know, it really doesn't, doesn't help to, to research on any one of them because that doesn't correlate to the next guy. But, yeah, that yeah. thread article, it's called The Tangled Mess, and, and I'm sure if you Google my name, and I think if you Google Charlie Craven and thread together, that will bring the article up. There you go. There you go. Good article, too. I, I put that in my notebook, uh, <laughs> you know, to reference because it's a, it's a very well-written article, and very informative. So yeah, you straight, straighten a lot of things out. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's see here. What else? Uh, we had a couple come in uh, on the internet here, Charlie. Uh, we have um, Phil from Kentucky wrote in. He says, do you use wild turkey feathers in any of your patterns? And if so, which one and how? Um, you know, not, I don't use them in any of my patterns specifically, but there's 
there's certainly lots of things you can do with wild turkey feathers. Um, you know, the mother minnows, you know, is a, a turkey wing feather. Um, so there's, you know, uh, historical uses there for sure. But turkey body feathers, the turkey flats, you can, you can actually wrap those like a, like a mallard flank feather. Um, you know, and kind of get a big wide spread to hold up marabou or to just make a big collar on the front of a fly. Um, you know, wild turkey, you know, and I, I'm guessing that, uh, you know, somebody killed a wild turkey and gave you a giant bag of turkey feathers because one turkey is about a billion feathers. Um, yeah. And you're trying well, to find a lives in There's Kentucky. a ton of, <laughs> ton, He's probably ton of good use for it, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Another one uh, from the Internet here. Uh, Trout Maharishi in Kathmandu. <laughs> okay, so anyway, uh, uh, I see so many freakishly large, articulated, half-chicken-sized streamers. What would you consider the optimum size for streamers? And is freakishly you know, large a bad thing? <laughs> yeah. Well, freakishly large these days I, I do think is getting to be a bad thing. You know, we... Uh, Mm. A few years ago, I was up on the, on the Yellowstone with a buddy of mine, and, and, you know, there's a bunch of young guides up there, and, you know, and they're all very good. But, man, they just are having a contest to outdo each other to tie the biggest, most garish thing you could imagine. You know, and it's, it's you know, this quest for the, the two-footer or the 30-inch fish. Um, <laughs> you know, a yeah. fly that, you know, it's, it, just because you can doesn't mean you should. You know, a fly that is, you know, you're still out fishing for fun. So, you know, the short answer to that question is, is no, I don't think you need gigantic flies for trout. You know, if you're musky fishing, that's a different story. Um, but, I mean, I've caught a pile of really nice big trout on, on baby gongas that are about two and a half or three inches long. You know, I've, trout eat small stuff. You know, it's, it's small bites. So, you know, I tend to try to make a fly that, uh, you know, doesn't tear my arm out of the socket, um, you know, that I can fish all day without wearing myself out. You know, these, the idea of fishing an eight weight with a full sinking line for trout all day has zero oh, yeah. percent appeal to me. So yeah. the big giants, um, you know, and realistically, you know, you move, you know, and I found that when I first came up with the double gonga, you know, the, the full size version that's about five or six inches long. You know, when I first started tying and fishing that fly, I caught a lot of fish on it and, and moved a ton of fish. And then, you know, as big flies like that got more popular, you know, if I go over and fish the collar out of these days with it, I move a ton of fish, but not many of them eat it anymore. They're wise to that oh. big stuff. You know, the smaller stuff seems to be more effective. So I do tend to fish, you know, small to medium size stuff. Still articulated, but small to medium more than I fish the big giant stuff. You know, save for dirty water conditions where I just need that really extra big profile. Yeah, I think we had another question on articulated. I don't know. Find it quickly. Oh, we'll come back to it. Um, and in your book, as with with all your books, you you know you've um, highlighted many different patterns for specific reasons about you know whether it's a particular material, a tying method. Uh, but you're trying to educate the reader so that by the end of the book, you've pretty much acquired all the tools, techniques you need to be tying streamers or nymphs or whatever. And it looks like you took that same approach with streamers, uh, your new book, Streamers, as well, right? I did. You know, I, I, every time I sit down to write a book, you know, from the, you know, the first one was the basic book, so that one I kind of had an idea for. But, um, you know, the Nymph and Streamer book, uh, specifically, you know, trying to, to come up with a, a cognizant, uh, you know, pedagogical idea of how to teach fly tying and how to, how to teach the techniques. And, you know, I, I really don't think anybody would buy a book that just said techniques on the cover. 
you know, everybody wants to learn patterns. So I try to craftily hide the, uh, you know, a wide variety of techniques in a range of patterns so that, like you say, by the time you get done, um, you've acquired this whole toolbox of, of useful techniques that you can use and go on from, you know, and kind of work with as you go down the road. You know, instead of just, you know, teaching somebody how to tie a woolly bugger, you know, you can, you can kind of expand on that and, and really focus on the techniques for wrapping hackle. And that's the same thing that you do on a, on a gonga, for instance. So that was the whole idea is to, to teach techniques. Fly tying is, is only a collection of techniques. The more techniques you have, the more of those tools you've got in your toolbox, the better tire you'll be. So, you know, I'm always going to stress the technique and I'll, I, you know, have found out over the years here that hiding it in patterns is a pretty easy way to get that across. Yeah, yeah. And, and you do have that baby gonga in there. I just noticed that uh, you've got that it, as it, one it, of yep. your examples. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I just want to point that out to people because um, that's one thing that makes your books different is that it's not just a pattern book with recipes. Um, it's it's an educational, you know. Uh, well, that, that, that's really, you know, it's it's so easy to make fly tying books dry and boring. You know, if yeah. you feel like you're, and I've seen this from teaching classes over the years, if you feel like you're making progress, you know, it, it leads to more success and you keep doing it. Yeah. Yeah, and you also have uh, you also have a lot of um, videos online that um, are you know free to anybody on YouTube to to check out and on your website too, which um, yes. we'll talk about right after I take this this thirty second break here. So uh, hang tight with me, and we'll be right back. You got it. Baja Fly Fishing Company is dedicated to fulfilling your vacation dreams, and just so there's no mistake, they derive as much pleasure helping a novice improve as they do fishing with a pro. From the casual to the hardcore, they can match your expectations with their experience and coaching. A vacation with Baja Fly Fishing is more than a fishing trip. It's a full-on Baja experience that you will remember forever. They know the Baja after 40 years of traveling its back roads, kayaking its shoreline, surfing and snorkeling while pioneering the fly fishing techniques that have evolved in the tactics used today. They are well-versed in fly fishing the beach, in kayaks, on pongas, and are well-versed in all tackle types. Join them in pursuit of roosterfish, dorado, marlin, sailfish, wahoo, jack creval, yellowfin, skipjack, and many other species. Learn more about Baja Fly Fishing Company by visiting their website at BajaFlyFish.com. Again, that's BajaFlyFish.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Charlie Craven about tying streamers. If you'd like to ask Charlie a question, just go to our homepage and fill out that Q&A text box there and send us your question. Okay, Charlie, I always ask my guests, you know, what's going on in your fly fishing world? So it was kind of a big year for you in a lot of ways, right? Uh, opening new oh, shop. Boy, yeah. You want to tell people about that? Yeah, we had, a, yeah. we had a lot going on besides, you know, everything else in the world right now. But, yeah, we, uh, you know, we moved out of our location in Old Town right back the first of, no or, yeah, first of November and uh, opened in a new shop just oh, about three-quarters of a mile away, so, so not far away, but about twice as big and, a freestanding building. We finally got our own parking lot with with more parking than we know what to do with, and uh, you know about 5,000 square feet of space. So so we we are uh, up and running and raring to go. And it's it's been you know one of those hindsight things that we should have done a long time ago. It's been fantastic. Um, you know it's a it's a beautiful spot. We worked hard on it. We did a remodel, and you know I honestly I couldn't be happier. Things are things are going very well. Yeah, and uh, yeah, you got that open just in time for COVID, basically, right? Well, yeah, we opened just before Christmas, and we got kind of a, a dry run at it all, and, and then COVID came, and, and you know, we did shut down for about a month. We kept doing our internet orders and kind of sending that stuff out, but 
you know, we were closed to the public for about a month, and and honestly, business was very good even even during the shutdown. I think everybody was home tying flies, and uh, you know that kept us going. And and since we've reopened, uh, you know, we've been open I guess since the first of May or so. Again, it's it's been gangbusters. It uh, you know the, everybody's kind of discovered that uh, you know fly fishing is a thing they wanted to try, and this year they had a chance to do it and get outside and kind of be safe with it. And uh, you know, there's there's been no shortage of, of uh, you know people in the shop these days. So so you know great, COVID, great. COVID knock on wood has done okay for us yeah yeah well that, that's that's great to hear and um why don't you share because uh out on charlie's website he has a, a lot of videos uh patterns photographs uh tying instructions um and of course you know he has uh he has uh um you know fly tying materials and, and merchandise and flies for sale as well there so uh charlie you know share your your website address so people can go and check you out it's uh, just charliesflyboxinc.com. Uh, charliesflybox.com will get you there as well. Okay, okay. So uh, charliesflybox.com or charliesflyboxinc.com. So go check out his site. Uh, it's got a lot of great, uh, great information, and like I said, uh, on, on tying, fly tying especially. So uh, check it all out. All right, good. So uh, more questions here. Um, Thomas King. Koenig in Cheyenne, Wyoming says, how do you choose a hook style for your streamers in terms of hook gap and wire diameter with regards to hook penetration capabilities? Ooh, that's a good question. You know, I'm, and I'm probably a little, a little contrary to a lot of tires. You know, there's a, you know, we talked a little bit about the big giant oversized streamers and, and a lot of guys are using, um, you know, really big heavy wire hooks. Um, and I'm not a fan of of overly large or particularly heavy wire streamer hooks. And and to that point, the, the baby gonga is sort of what taught me that. One thing I noticed fishing the baby gonga is that smaller hook it's on a size 8, two extra long uh, hook, uh, which is not a terribly big hook. You know, it's on two of them. It's articulated. But um, that small hook, it seems like when fish get that fly, that fly is stuck in them really well. That smaller diameter wire, um, you know, that, that little bit smaller hook seems to grab hold a lot better. Um, and I don't lose nearly as many fish as I do on the bigger wide gap heavy wire hooks that are much harder to drive home. So, so I do, you know, kind of pay attention to that, you know, and, you know, the, the quality hooks that are very strong for small diameter, Kiyomkos, Gamakatsus, Daiichis, uh, hooks like that seem to do the job a lot better than, uh, you know, hooks that are made with extra heavy wire or, uh, you know, it, Honestly, even even particularly wide gaps, um, you know, if the gap gets too wide on some of that big stuff, you know, I, I think it's actually prohibitive to hooking. It's just, you know, it doesn't drive in where it needs to drive into the fish's mouth. It's it's just too much hook. So I'm I'm very oh. conscious of kind of staying on the small light side on those hooks. I just think they perform better. Yeah, good. Okay. Um, next question from Tim Weeks in uh, Fairview, Pennsylvania says. Uh, and just talking about that, the multiple shanks and streamers, are, are they more for the fishermen than for the fish, knowing one will give a uh, streamer good movement? So um, is that move? I mean, Kelly Gal <laughs> made his name on those articulated streamers, right? Uh, they must do oh, something. Oh, absolutely. Um, they, yeah. they absolutely do, you know. And, and that was sort of, you know, I keep coming back to the baby gonga, but, you know, that was sort of how the baby gonga came about is I, you know, I moved a ton of fish on the big gonga, but they weren't closing the deal on it. And, you know, I remember driving home from a fishing trip one day, and I was kind of thinking to myself, you know, is it, is it the articulation or is it the size that, you know, the, is it that wiggle 
or is it the you know just sheer size of that big fly that's that's pulling so many fish? And I got the idea to tie a smaller one, and uh, you know that's where the baby gonga came from. And and it absolutely, I would say, 100% has to do with the wiggle. Um, you know, a, oh. a, a solid shank fly, the same size, doesn't have the same movement, doesn't have that broke back movement that the that an articulated fly does. So I would I would absolutely say that an articulated fly fishes better and attracts attracts fish better than solid hook fly. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, if we just think back, um, you know, when I was a kid uh, and, and still today, you know, you have all these articulated lures for bass and pike and stuff that goes way back. Absolutely. So, you know, they, they work. Yeah, there's much better action. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So there, there's got to be something to that. Yeah. Good. Um, Pete in Connecticut says, I, I live in Connecticut and fish saltwater mostly, most of the time. I tie my own flies and are often frustrated with streamers fouling. I use techniques uh, such as mono loops, etc. What anti-fouling design methods work best for you? I think we had a couple of other questions about fouling as well, so common problems. You know, so, yeah, people don't like this answer. I get this question a lot. People don't like this answer, but it's, it's casting. You know, you're letting your loop collapse somewhere through there where that fly can kind of get pushed around. Um, if the, you know, if you think of the fly being at the end of the loop, you know, there's no chance for it to change direction or for that tail to foul or a wing to foul. You know, a little bit more of a chance on a fly like a Platte River Special or, a, you know, like a, a, a Black Ghost type of thing with a feather wing just at the front. But realistically, you know, on tarpon flies, I've always used a mono loop under the tail or a stiff clump of... Uh, calf tail hair or, or bucktail to kind of support the tail. But honestly, you know, I had a saltwater guy tell me that years ago. Simon Becker told me, you know, if you don't if you don't throw tailing loops, your flies don't foul. And he's he's absolutely right. Um, you know, a good oh. casting stroke makes a huge difference in keeping the fly unfouled. So that that has a lot to do with it. And I noticed, you know, through the day I you know in the morning I cast like a champion and in the afternoon my fly will start fouling. Same fly. You know, it's my arm oh. gets tired and I'm, I'm losing focus a little bit and you know when you're paying attention to it and really doing it well the fly won't foul nearly as much. Interesting. Yeah. Good, good, uh, good tip there. Um, any do's and don'ts when working with rabbit strips? Ooh, I don't work with rabbit strips much. So I'd say that there's, yeah, there's one oh, big don't. Okay. Um, you know, rab rabbit strips are the, you know, the most, uh, to me, <laughs> uh, here's my opinion. Um, to me, the most mundane, <laughs> you know, easy answer, um, you know, to any streamer problem. And, the problem with rabbit strips is they're attached to rabbit hide, and that leather is heavy. It makes the fly heavy. It makes the fly hard to cast. There's no substitute for the movement of it. You know, it moves beautifully, but, God, it's just the worst material in the world as far as trying to cast the stuff. It just feels like a sock. So, you know, my trick is to sort of avoid it. You know, I'll, I'll put rabbit fur in a dubbing loop, um, you know, or use minimal amounts of it. I, you know, I don't really have rabbit strips on any of my personally designed flies. Uh, Matt Winkler that works oh, for me does okay. a... Uh, a kamikaze sculpin that's got a short uh, short rabbit strip for a wing on it. You know, it's kind of a zonker, um, oh, zonker matuka sculpin kind of hybrid thing. Um, but even, you know, the head on that, he takes that fur out and he puts it in a dubbing loop so there's not extra leather on there. You know, rabbit strips are, are not my favorite thing just because of the, the casting liability of the fly being so heavy. But to answer that question a little more, you know, from a commercial tying standpoint where I tied for years and years and years, one of the biggest things with rabbit strips is they're so dang messy to tie with. Um, and one of the best tricks I ever came up with is I take a package of rabbit strips, you know, out of the package or the whole hide, and there's always loose fur in them. And I'll take that, that whole hide and I'll hold on to the, 
to one end of the, the bundle or the, or the hide, and I'll run it down the vacuum tube and suck all that loose fur out ahead of time. Um, and then there's not near so much of it that ends up my nose, ends up up my nose. So that's my big trick for tying with rabbit fur. Besides, don't use it. And I I can't remember the last time I've had a fly <laughs> okay. with a rabbit strip these days. Okay, good, good. Um, Rich Road in Pittsburgh uh, says, do your streamer designs differ when planning to rapidly move down a river, casting across the current, versus your streamer design when planning to fish slower moving water? You kind of kind of talked about that earlier. Yeah, yeah, we could, we could have did. Yeah, you know that that's the fast and the slow. Although you know the pace at which I'm fishing. You know, if I'm moving down a river in a boat, you know, I have, boy, again, it depends on how fast the river's moving. You know, so yeah, so you know, faster moving. If I'm moving faster, if the river's moving faster, I'm covering water. I generally want a heavier fly that will will get down and stay down during the retrieve. If I'm you know fishing slower water and and moving through it slower. I can kind of go either way. I'd say if I'm fishing slower water, I want a bulkier fly that will sort of suspend and, and that I can sim, swim slower. Um, you know, if I'm moving slower, I might get something, you know, slow-moving slow water. If, if I'm not fishing the bank, you know, to me kind of means rainbows out toward the center. So I'll fish something more sculpin-y. Uh, rainbows seem to, you know, browns like them too, but rainbows seem to eat sculpins uh, really well here in Colorado. So a slow-moving fly on the swing um, is what I'd fish in, you know, like a, a long run kind of thing. Browns tend to tend to be piled up in you know I'm speaking of Colorado here, but uh, piled up mm -hmm. in rocks or structure in a bank. So it depends on the water structure for sure, and you know I'll kind of tailor that if it's a if it's a long run with a relatively even bottom, you know I'll fish a fly that I could fish slower and kind of swing and just and cover water with rather than target shoot you know at structure along the bank or or along rocks. Okay, um, James, do do Bill Beast, I don't know how to pronounce his last name. James, up there in Alpine, Wyoming, uh, he says, I believe uh, real streamer innovation erupted around early 2000 with the new Kelly Gallup streamer designs. In your opinion, please summarize the top three streamer tying and fishing techniques that have evolved since then. Please also summarize your three favorite streamer tying materials and why they are superior. So have you seen uh, innovations? Oh yeah, for sure. You know, I would say you know undoubtedly one of those would be you know articulated flies. You know, certainly there's and there's a lot more people doing it now, which you know I think is I think is great. You know, more the more minds on a problem, the the better uh, you know the better the answer can come out. Um, so you know the articulation thing. Although I'd say you know with the with social media, there's a lot of copying going on, and there's not a lot of fresh thinking. Fresh thinking really turns me on. I really I like the idea of fresh thinking. So. You know, Kelly is, you know, a fantastic guy. I, I know him. I've talked to him a bunch, and he's got some really fresh-thinking ideas. So, I mean, obviously, he's, you know, he's the guy. Um, you know, some, some great ideas as far as streamer design goes there. Boy, three, three streamer techniques. Three streamer tying techniques. I would say, yeah, articulation for sure. Um, you know, beyond that, I don't know that the techniques are all that different, you know, tying-wise. You know, uh -huh. they've been there. They just haven't been utilized, you, you know. You know, sp spun deer hair heads and, uh, you know, craft fur in a dubbing loop, you know, which I do a lot more of than deer hair. You know, making a uh, – I do see a lot more guys kind of making flies, and this is sort of my thing these days too, is um, making flies that are big but don't cast like they're big, you know, kind of the antithesis of the, of the giant, you know, stuffed animal-looking fly that you put everything on your desk on. I, you know, I think there's a lot more thought going into streamer patterns in the, in the right – avenues right now 
So I'd say that's a you know something that I I definitely have an eye out for. You know, for a third one, I don't know. I'd have to think that through a little bit more. But I, yeah, it's articulation and oh. and just the overall design to kind of create a create a pattern that doesn't have you know just has the highlights. It doesn't need every every fin and scale. It just needs to have the highlights. You know, so a fly that that does what it's supposed to do, whether it's you know sink well or swim well or combination of the of the two or not sink so well so that it kind of suspends. Um, you know, Blaine Chocolate's got some fantastic stuff that's, you know, he fishes slower moving water. You know, flies that sort of suspend but still swim beautifully. I mean, that's design. So the, the whole idea of a streamer design, whatever, you know, faction that takes, I think is, you know, a big, huge thing that's coming about a lot more these days. And we're right in the middle of all that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, what about your uh, favorite uh, streamer tying materials? Oh, boy. Um Gosh, you know, I, I use a lot of I use a lot of craft fur and polar fiber. Um, I have probably more polar fiber than craft fur these days, but um, you know, so polar fiber, um, you know, webby hen hackle, uh, mallard flank. Uh, the the swim coach by New Streamer is made out of possum fur, you know, in a dubbing loop. You know, Arctic fox. Um, although I I'm kind of leaning toward possum now because it doesn't have so much under fur and again it's not so doesn't get so heavy to cast. Um, you know, I've got you know, kind of a big giant bag full of streamer stuff that I kind of dig out when I'm working on something. And I'm always looking in the shop, you know, to kind of think of what else I can use. So, you know, I always have my eyes open for that. But until you throw a fly in the water, you know, just sitting on your desk, you can make stuff. I see it on Facebook every day. I mean, some super cool looking stuff. But, you know, the fly's got to not weigh a ton to cast. It's got to sink the way it's supposed to sink and, you know, hopefully not take forever to tie. But, yeah. you know, material selection is going to probably vary with the tire. You just mentioned, uh, you know, how it looks in the water. Do you use one of those uh, little, you know, aquarium moving water tanks to view I, your, I, your I streamers? I don't. The, the catch I have, I actually seriously considered getting one of those, but my catch with that is that basically simulates hanging your fly downstream of your boat, you know, facing upstream in the current and what it would do there, which is not how I ever swim a streamer. Um, so uh -huh. that doesn't tell me much. <laughs> Okay. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. I just see that, you know, so often, kind of like yeah, a wind I, tunnel. I, I kind see of it thing. every yeah. day, and it's, you know, that's what your fly yeah. looks like when you hang it downstream of the boat. It it makes total sense. Yeah. Um, so you just talked about materials, and maybe some of those are, are an answer to Matt's question here in Commerce City. He says, "What's your favorite material to add movement to your mini leech patterns?" Uh, also, can you tell us about your favorite colors for hunting? Big cuts and goldens that are finicky. Oh, um, well, I mean, material for mini leeches. You know, that's that's a good question for Landon Mayor. I can tell you, you know, leeches are all all of black brown. You know, I've seen very light colored, kind of creamy white colored ones. You know, Landon ties his his with uh, pine squirrel. My little uh, uh, squirrel leech is obviously tied with with squirrel. But yeah, I mean, the, the color. I'd probably say I probably fish black more than anything. Um, brown is, you know, a good solid second bet there. So, you know, that's that's what I'd use to add movement. You know, that squirrel is is super slinky in the water, and you know, contrary to rabbit strips, that hide is pretty thin. So it's not, you know, they're and they're much smaller uh -huh. flies typically. So they're they're not near as heavy. You know, John Barr Slump Buster is another great fly. That's a big fly that he's used a good material on rather than a giant chunk of rabbit fur. Uh, you know, that squirrel's much lighter to cast and. Uh, you know, the way it's positioned, that fly sinks well because it's a vertical orientation. It doesn't slow the sink rate. You know, as far as colors go, that depends on the day. And, 
you know, if you watch me fish when I get in the boat and at the beginning of the day, I almost always start with a light-colored fly, and I work my way, you know, from light-colored, you know, from light-colored fly to black fly, and then through the colors if they're not working, you know, olive, rust, uh, yellow, you know, I'll mix that up. But I don't have, you know, I don't have a specific order. It's oftentimes based on mood. I, I start with a light-colored fly because I can always see that the best, and I like to watch them eat it. Uh, so that's pure greed on my part. You know, uh, an olive fly very often works really well, but that's the hardest one to see in the water, you know, fishing from the boat. So, you know, olive is my least favorite. That doesn't mean I don't catch fish on it. Um, it just means I don't get to see them eat it as much. So, you know, there's not, I don't have a, you know, a pattern to, to what order I go through the colors in by any stretch. But, um, you know, I, I carry a variety. I've got, I don't, I have all the colors. <laughs> there you go. One of them's yeah, got to work, yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, one of them's got to work. And I'll, you know, I'll change them out. Yeah, that's one of the nice things with streamers. Yeah, is, yeah. You know, in five minutes, you know if it's going to work or not. Yeah, I mean, that's what I remember when I interviewed Kelly Gallup on, on fishing streamers. Uh, you know, the same. He says, "Why well, try a white one? That doesn't." I, then five minutes later, I'll change it to a black one, and then I change it to a yellow one. Yeah, that's right. I mean, if, if fish are going to eat a They'll, I mean, they'll tell you, you know, in the first five minutes of you fishing it if they're, you know, if they like it or not. Um, and it's amazing when you find the right color, it's on. You know, it's just, and and it's not, you know, don't don't fish it for two hours and and say uh, now I'll go back through and I'll fish a yellow one. You know, uh, switch it out pretty yeah. quick. You know, if yeah. you're covering good water and you're not moving fish, if you're not at least moving them, um, change something up. I always wondered about that. I mean, you know, they don't fish don't have email, telephones, you know, text messaging. I wonder how they let all the other fish in the river know it's yellow today. You know, <laughs> what is with they that? all seem to know pretty quickly, though, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Okay, guys, yellow today. All right. Tomorrow will be brown, but today's yellow. Yep. Yep. Um, well, let's take a, a quick break here, and then we'll come right back and, and dig more in. We've got plenty more questions coming in, so hang tight here, Charlie. We'll be right back. Wondermaster is dedicated to providing their customers with the highest quality inflatables on the market as well as unbeatable customer service and product support. They are best known for their signature products, the Watermaster Grizzly and Kodiak rafts. These rafts are lightweight, compact, durable, versatile, and safe. The Watermaster rafts are everything your personal watercraft should be. They have been used by anglers and hunters all over the world for over 15 years, including Dave Whitlock, one of fly fishing's greatest innovators. Dave said, with my Watermaster, I can enjoy more fishing per hour than any other method I have ever tried. After two and a half years of testing 15 models of kickboats, I am convinced that the Watermaster is the ultimate personal flotation craft for warm and cold water fly fishing. Visit Watermaster today and take a look at the ultimate personal flotation craft. Go to BigSkyInflatables.com. Again, it's BigSkyInflatables.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Charlie Craven about tying streamers. If you'd like to ask Charlie a question, just go to our homepage and, and fill out that Q&A text box and send us your question. We'll try to get an answer tonight for you. Uh, which there have been a few questions come in on the Internet here, Charlie. Um, Let's see, Ed uh, Constantini uh, in Wisconsin says, uh, do you have a preference for hook eyes on streamers, downward, level, or uh, up eye? Um, you know, if I had my druthers on, uh, you know, on availability anyway, I would pick ring eye, a straight eye, uh, on all of them. I don't really like up eyes at all, but straight eye or down eye is, is what I like most. I typically tie my streamers on with a, with a loop knot, a non-slip mono loop. 
Um, so I don't know that it makes a huge difference, but I do think that the, the straight eye hooks do track a little bit better. Um, so I do like the ring eye hooks if I have that option, you know, in the in the right configuration. There's not a not a ton, you know, some of the really big streamer hooks, most of them are ring eyes now. Um, but some of the smaller stuff, you like, you know, a Tiemco 5262 I think is a great streamer hook, and it's a down eye hook. Um, and I, I don't feel limited by it because of the because of the, the loop knot. But, you know, if I had my druthers, I'd, I'd have all of them be a, a ring eye hook. Okay. Uh, Lud Jones uh, in Highlands Ranch wants to know, when what's the next book you will work on in your series of books? I was actually thinking about that today. Um, Jay Nichols, who uh, has been my editor for years, actually shared the post about this podcast today, and uh, that made me think of that. I think the next book on the agenda is the Dry Fly book, um, and I, I would do that this hmm. winter or at least get started on it this winter. I don't know. You know, they don't like the books to kind of pile up on each other, so I don't know how soon that would come out or, or if I should even start on it yet. I don't like to start too far ahead of time just because, you know, fly tying advances at such a rate that uh, – you know, if I if I did it now and it was published in two years, it it could be out of date by then. So, but I do think yeah, the dry fly is yeah. the next one on the agenda. Yeah, certainly that uh, there's a lot of techniques to be learned there. Uh, you know, for the dry flies. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking that someday you'd do a, a, a specific uh, saltwater version too, but uh, just my hopes, maybe. <laughs> so keep that yeah, I, I might. You know, we, we talked about a whole series. You know, this, this, you know, the nymph book and the streamer book obviously are part of this series. Um, and you know, we had talked. You know, and who knows how the how the world moves these days, but. Um, you know, nymph book, streamer book, dry fly book, terrestrial book, a merger book, mm -hmm. um, maybe a technique book at the end, although I feel like the technique book would be redundant to, you know, just be a conglomeration of everything. Um, you know, I yeah, don't have yeah. a, a saltwater book, book on the agenda, but I do have some of those saltwater patterns that I do in my in the Charlie Slybox book. So, um, you know, yeah, I, I think yeah. a guy like Drew, Drew Chacon would be the guy to do that one. Yeah, yeah, he's good, yeah. Um and he has uh, several books. And he out. has, yeah, um, exactly. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, we have uh, Bernard in Los Angeles. He says, I don't tie as much as I used to, but uh, when I need uh, inspiration, I check and see what you are creating. <laughs> and he says, so I'm glad to see that the topic is streamers today. I often find that streamers such as variations of the muddler have been uh, have extra effect because they push a lot of water. But in recent years, I've been enjoying very minimal streamers. <laughs> often in small sizes and often very sparse dressings to get to, to great effect for large trout. Imagine a Mickey Finn type streamer with just a few wisps, wisps of squirrel and minimum flash in size 10. Have you experimented with anything like this and would you share any insights uh, with regards to minimalists and small streamers that I am describing? And you've, you've kind of talked to this already, uh, that, that that's a, a trend you're, you're seeing out there, right? Well, and I, I, you know, I think this is even even more to an extreme, and and the answer to it is yes, I have, uh, you know, actually, I mean, not not too long ago, I mean, within the last few years, uh, I was fishing the Arkansas, and my buddy Larry said, you know, we why don't you try a muddler, and I was like, a muddler? Do I even have a muddler in my box? Well, you know, we he dug one out of his box and we fished it, and and you know, I'll tell you, I have I have small muddlers like size tens in my box now, you know, a small tiny little profile streamer can sometimes be. You know, that could be the key, and it's it's sort of my, my uh, uh, you know, secret weapon, especially if you're fishing a river that sees, you know, a lot of guys fishing streamers um, that are, that are be, you know, being effective at it. You know, if you're the fourth or fifth boat down and everybody's been throwing a, a double gonga or a sex dungeon or something big and, 
you know, a small fly can be can be pretty subtle and still get that same, you know, same kind of effect that you're after. The, uh, you know, you can drop those little flies just exactly where you want them. You know, I, I fish them behind a behind a bigger fly sometimes. Just you know, it's kind of a change up, so the you know, fish sees the big fly but feels safer eating that little fly. So I mean, that's that's something to to talk about. You know, and I've I've sort of kept that a little bit under my hat. I've got a, a little articulated fly that I'm working on now that that is unlike anything else I've done. You know, much smaller, uh, much sparser. For, for you know, I call it a minnow. It's you know, it's just a little. It's not a baby trout. It's a minnow. Just a little tiny, um, you know, a t- little tiny bite, which I think you know probably gets eaten a lot more than we think about. So, um, you yeah. know, I, I'd say you're onto something. Um, Ed Hovenspan uh, in Weston, Massachusetts. He says, "What advice could you give uh, regarding spinning deer hair around uh, lead dumbbell, uh, dumbbell eyes, like mini dungeon?" Uh, it seems one out of three times it comes out acceptable for him. He says, "I'm burning through a lot of hair." <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, that's. I mean, that you're you're doing the right thing then. Practice, practice. Um, you know, the biggest trick with spinning deer hair around lead eyes is um, getting the the bunch of hair that's uh, up against. You know, you might have one bunch for the collar and then another bunch right up against the back of the lead eyes, and you want to put it right up against the back of the lead eyes. You have to kind of think that your thread is in the middle of that bunch. Um, so where you position your thread before you start to spin that bunch is going to be pretty close to the eyes. And, you know, of course, the, the eyes themselves inhibit the rotation of the hair as you spin it. But realistically on flies like that, stacking is probably a, a better bet, you know, a bunch on the bottom and a bunch on top and then flare it in place. That will fill the, as the hair spreads out, you know, 360 degrees, you know, into a ball, it's going to fill the void over the top of the, the lead eye stem, the, the handle across the center of the barbell. You know, and then the same thing in front of the eyes. Try to get it as close to the eyes as you can, and you know, even manually work it around the hook a little bit before you start to spin it, just to kind of, you know, get a jump start on that spin and that distribution, so that the hair encompasses the eyes, um, rather than having a bunch that's on the top with a with a bare crossbar on the eyes sticking out across the bottom. Okay, uh, Ed had another question. He says, uh, "I bought about ten colors of the Steve." Uh, for our uh, flash blend for tying mainly saltwater patterns, because I'm so disappointed with the product, it continually fouls even using short shanked hooks. I like the concept that it's hydrophobic and can be trimmed to shape, but it uh, I keep the shape, but it keeps the shape very well. I've used EP fibers with better results, but would appreciate your recommendation of a synthetic product I could try. Do you know what he's uh, after there? I'm not sure exactly, but I, I would, you, you know, it sounds like kind of trips, trimming something to shape, and, and I would point you at EP fibers. Those are, um, you know, that's a really good material for for streamers to create a shape out of. Uh, you know, it does hold its shape very well, and it and it doesn't foul very easily. You know, the Ferrar blend stuff, um, you know, I've seen in a brush and I've seen in a, in a hank, um, and it reminds me more of a dubbing, so it's pretty soft material. There's not much rigidity to it, so... Um, it doesn't ter- doesn't surprise me terribly that it fouls. So, you know, probably just the wrong material for the job. You know, something something more like an EP fiber. And there's, uh, you know, a variety of consistencies of EP fibers and EP brushes. Even, I mean, you know, you look at the the EP uh, catalog or, or website. There's there's eight million different varieties. But, you know, EP fibers or, uh, you know, even the softer trigger point fibers. Uh, you know, I, I would think would probably be a better option with a little more rigidity to keep the keep their shape and, and not foul so easily. Uh, Ray Treadway 
And uh, Littleton says, I'm interested in smaller freshwater bait patterns to attract trout, for example, perch. Uh, as well, and I've seen your use of the conehead in your dirty hippie pattern, but what other techniques, materials do you recommend to achieve a flared head body versus a streamlined minnow shape and keep the body flatter versus round? To kind of get a, okay, I think what he's, what he's after is like a bluegill shaped fly, you know, a tall skinny fly, you know, narrow side to side, but, you know, deep from top to bottom. And, you know, the, and the cone is sort of the idea, you know, that's the idea on the, uh, on the dirty hippie, but on something like that, you know, what I'd probably use is, um, you know, a clump of deer hair or bucktail, um, and probably deer hair, probably kind of low quality, like uh, primo deer hair strip, just natural deer hair that's fairly solid hair, so it's so it'll still sink. Um, but I would flare a bunch of hair and then put your material that you're going to create the body from over the top of that to kind of create the height, um, you know, the, the top and bottom, um, and with you know these UV resins that we've got these days, you can kind of create uh, that skeleton underneath. You know, if you just imagine, you know, a, a chunk of hair kind of flared out on the top and the bottom, almost spun around the hook, you know, like a, like a streamer collar. And then if you put some resin across the bottom of it, along the base, and sort of pinched it into the shape that you wanted and cooked it there, um, that would create the skeleton that you need, but without any rigidity to impede the hooking. And I've, I've sort of played with some things like that to make... Uh, Oh, pinfish and, and bluegill patterns. That was actually one of the, you know, sort of in the process of coming up with the dirty hippie. I actually tried that deer hair, but that would be a pretty easy way to make a fly that's tall, uh, you know, tall and deep, but not so wide. Uh, but that resin to keep it from uh, from being 360 degrees round, you know, so it's not not a tube, but more of a more of a uh, a sheet. And uh, that's yeah, that's how yeah. I go about it. Or at least where I'd start, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Charles Rogers in South Carolina wants to know, uh, do you prefer streamers tied thick and dense with materials or sparse and thin? Ooh, um, again, depends a little bit on a little bit on the situation, but I generally would say sparse and thin, you know, and that is relative to the pattern. I don't mm -hmm. like super heavily dressed flies because they, you know, you have to think about, a, about several things in, in a streamer design. You know, you, you need the fly. First of all, you have to be able to cast the dang thing. Um, and it do, that doesn't mean cast it, you know, 20 feet for half an hour. It means cast it all day, however far you need to cast it. So a big, heavy fly is, is not of much use to anybody on a, on a long-term basis. So I always try to design a fly that's got a, you know, if I'm trying to do a big fly, um, as little material as it takes to get that profile a fly that has got a lot of surface area is going to sink much slower than a fly that's narrow and thin and sparse. So, so sparse, sparse flies, you know, cut through the water better. You know, I mentioned the, the slump buster earlier, and that's, that fly is, you know, and I, I say it in my streamer book, that, that is as near perfect as you can get for a streamer design because it's got, you know, height and volume to it, but there's not a lot of surface area. So that fly just plummets. It casts really well. It sinks really well. It strips really well. You know, it's got a lot of good movement. So, so flies without mountains of material on them, things that have, you know, just, you know, piles of stuff on them, the material gets in the way. The marabou can't move because there's a, a lamb's wool collar holding it down. And, you know, there's, you can't get big enough lead eyes on it to, to make the fly buckle and make the articulation, ar articulation come into play. So in general, I say, you know, try to get as big a fly as you can get or as big a fly as you're planning for using as little material you know, as judiciously applied as you can 
to get there. That's going to make a better fishing fly than a, you know, a fly that I think gets eaten a lot better. Flies that are, that are super solid and super opaque, I think, are, are too obviously fakes to, to fish that have seen you know, more than a few streamers. We got a couple questions in here, Charlie, from uh, on the internet. Um, Larry in Albuquerque, uh, why don't you rephrase your question? I'm not quite sure how to ask that, and we could give it a, a second try. Charlie in Dutch John says, uh, when you sit down to innovate a streamer or any fly type, what's your main goal? Is it to utilize a new material, get a desired silhouette and or action, to get a bug that's delivered easily and stealthily, uh, or just to have uh, that bin appeal? <laughs> Ooh, um, actually, no, none of the above. You know, my when I sit down to develop a fly, it is always solving a problem. My thing that I, you know, and I've gotten good at it over the years. You know, I see liabilities in other flies. You know, I'll fish. I fish a lot of flies. Uh, you know, I fish a lot of my own flies, and they, and they're never done. You know, I'm always kind of tweaking them. Um, so so when I, you know, sit down to do a fly designer to come up with a new design. Um, I'm always trying to improve on what was already out there. You know, a fly that floats better than a, uh, you know, whatever, um, you know, or sinks better. Two-bit hooker is a great example. I wanted a fly to use on a dropper that, uh, you know, would get down fast and, and stay down. So I wanted a slim profile fly that was very heavy. And, you know, as, as simple as the two-bit hooker came out, I mean, it took me forever to come, to come up with the idea of just putting two dang beads on the fly. I went all kinds of different directions with that fly. You know, I've got a new a new dry fly called a Fat Angie that is sort of my answer to a chubby. You know, it's a, a big, bushy, large-profile dry fly that doesn't get pushed out of the water. It sits it's tied on a clean camera hook. Doesn't, you know, I look at the liabilities of what exists and, and how I can improve on it uh, or how I, can, how I can make it better or how I can design a fly that will fish better or float better or sink better or, you know, all of the above, really, depending on what it needs to do, dry or nymph um, or streamer. So that it's always to solve a problem. Bin appeal, I like pretty flies for sure, and I think everybody else does too. Nobody wants to buy an ugly fly. You know, the mole fly is one of my best-selling flies, and it's the ugliest, dumbest, plainest-looking flies, and i got to talk every guy into it the first time. Once they take it and fish it, they learn, but that, that doesn't sell a lot of flies. You know, and I'll, I'll tell you, I mean, I, I am very lucky to be a very successful fly designer these days, but if no one ever paid me a nickel, I'd still keep doing that. You know, I like the problem-solving aspect of fly fishing. That's what has kept me going. You know, that's I think that's what keeps all of us going back. You know, if you if you went out and caught every fish every time you went, you wouldn't do it for very long. I like going out. I like having a tough day of fishing. You know, I learn more on days where I don't catch a lot of fish, trying to figure out what to do differently. Um, you know, so there's always a thought in my mind of what I can do better or what I can make better. You know, what I can improve on and and you know. Luckily, I have this venue to be able to kind of put that out where it helps other people too, which is, you know, that's, you know, it sounds it sounds silly, but I mean, it, it really does make you feel good when a guy comes out and he says, you know, I fished your, you know, X whatever fly out, you know, the other day, and God, we just killed him with it. I love hearing stuff like that. You know, keep keeping patterns secret these days is not uh, like back in the day when I was a kid, nobody told you anything about their their secret fly, and you know, these days you find out the minute the guy tied it. So. You know, I like putting it out there. I like other guys to be to be able to use it. I, I like to, to get the idea of the, of the innovation out, and I, I hope that inspires other people to innovate. You know, don't just copy. You know, see what you can make better. You know, look at what the liability. What you what do you not like about the fly, and and what can you do to solve that? So, that's sort of how I go about a fly design. Is it's got it's got to have a need and a purpose before before I even sit down to think about it. You know, if there's uh -huh. um, you know if there's a fly, I can't I can't improve on a slump buster. 
You know, I'm not going to sit down and try to improve that fly, but there's a lot of other flies that I can kind of design around that, you know, mm -hmm, that, that mm -hmm, do, okay. do serve different purposes. Yeah, yeah. Larry uh, wrote back and he says, how about intruder style for new techniques, compound dubbing ropes? Does that make sense to you? Um, uh, how about them? I use them a lot. I, you know, compound dubbing ropes, um, you know, dubbing, a dubbing loop with more than one material in it. Um, you know, it's amazing these days on the Internet, everybody comes up with a name for it. You know, dubbing loops have been around for, you know, since I was a little kid, you know, with a variety of materials. But now they're called compound dubbing loops. You know, and they're, they're used a lot on steelhead flies and intruders where you put, you know, maybe some flash, and, you know, some dubbing, some flash, some fur, some CDC, some, uh, you know, Amherst pheasant tail, you know, all kinds of different materials into a loop to kind of create a wide profile fly, um, which is a really good way to make a fly with a wide profile without a lot of material in it. You know, the big trick to it is is how you get all that material into the loop. And again, I think I think so many people, you know, you're packing too much material on the hook. If you're having trouble getting the material into the loop, you probably have too much of it. It, it doesn't take, you know, you're essentially making it into a feather. You're making a stem of the feather with the thread. And if you've got mm -hmm. too much material, it's going to be hard to get twisted up. It's going to bind up and twist up. You know, most flies, you know, two or three inches of dub loop material is plenty um, even for a big fly, it just doesn't take that much, you know. If you, and I, you know, that comes from commercial tying. You, you think you have one package of chenille, and you got enough for, you know, gosh, I've only got enough for two dozen flies. You got enough for five dozen flies. There's only, you know, two inches of chenille on a woolly bugger. You know, you, it's it's you don't need that much material. So everybody trying to build these giant dubbing loops, you know, individually on the hook. You know, if you're having trouble with it, you're probably trying to do too much thread. You know, too long a span and put too much material in. You know, every you can still put as many different kinds, but just not as much as of each one, you know, sparser. And the, the result will come out more like what you want. Yeah, okay, okay. I uh, hope that a couple questions. Question. <laughs> yeah, I hope so too. That's what, it was the second time I asked him to, add, uh, to send it in because I wasn't quite sure what he was asking. Um, come on, Larry, get right it together. In, yeah. <laughs> uh, so uh, a couple, maybe we can combine these. Uh, Phil in, in Florida is asking about, uh, are, are you, do you recommend loop knots for a tippet to streamer? And then we've got uh, Steve Bush in Idaho asking about this, uh, what weight to use for tippet material for streamers. So maybe you can combine those into one answer. Okay, there. so, you know, I, I spoke earlier that I, you know, always try to tie my streamer on with a loop knot, and I'll, I'll be honest and say, you know, when I start at the boat ramp, I tie the, the fly onto a uh, onto a loop knot, and you know, if I crack it off in a tree halfway down, and I'm in some good water, I'll grab and uh, grab another streamer and tie it on with a regular clinch knot real quick and throw it out there. And I, I don't see that I, you know, fishing's hot; it doesn't seem to make a huge difference. But a loop knot uh, will let your fly sink faster because it can sink head down, and it reduces, you know, versus laying horizontal, it's going to lay vertical as it sinks. So that, that loop knot lets the fly sink faster because there's less surface area head down than there is, you know, horizontally. So I always do try to use a, a loop knot, you know, especially if I've got time, you know, and there are exceptions to that for sure. As for tippet size for streamers, for trout, I fish 0x, uh, which is about 15-pound test fluorocarbon, um, always fluorocarbon. It just holds up much better. I don't think you catch any more fish. I don't think the sink rate has anything to do with it. Um, I just think that fluorocarbon, I know that fluorocarbon is more durable. It doesn't get beat up as fast. And, you know, I'm a pretty accurate caster, but I hit rocks and trees and everything else like everybody else these days. And, you know, it just it holds up much better. But 0x only. You know, if I'm fishing still waters in a small leech, I might fish 3x. 
but in a river, I'm fishing, I'm fishing zero X on all of it. And, and the reason is, is, is the fish is going one way trying to grab your fly and you're stripping the other way. Um, and if you fish lighter than that, I mean, gosh, 2X would be, would be pretty light. You know, 1X or 0X is sort of where I'm at on, on all that stuff these days. And it's not, you know, from a trout fish, I get this question in the shop a lot. From a trout fishing perspective, everybody thinks lighter tippet is better. And, you know, when you're trying to get a dead drift, that is true. But in the case of a streamer, you're retrieving the fly. The tippet has, you know, aside from being, you know, extraordinarily big, you know, if you used 50 pounds, the fish would still eat it on 50 pounds, but 50 pounds would slow the sink rate of the fly because of the diameter. You know, so 0x is small enough to let the fly sink well still, but still plenty strong so that when a big fish grabs the fly going one way and you're, you know, in the middle of a strip going the other way, you don't crack the fly right off. You know, I, I see it a lot. Guys walk up to the counter with a, you know, a cup full of streamers and a spool of 4x. And, and I tell them, you know, like, you're going to come back and buy all these streamers again tomorrow because you're going to lose every one of them the minute a fish eats them. And I learned that the hard way, you know, when I was a kid. I, had, I used the tippet I had. You know, I had a spool, so I used that. You learn, learn very quickly that, you know, streamers, you can use heavier tippet, and it makes no difference at all to the fish. Like I say, honest to God, uh -huh. you could fish. I, I have fish 20 pounds, and they, they will eat your fly on 20 pounds, no problem at all. Um, it does slow the sink rate of the yeah. fly, but they'll eat it on 20 pounds. So, yeah, don't, don't worry about okay. being light with streamer tippet. Larry wrote back in here, uh, he's down in New Mexico, um, he asked that question that we were kidding him about. He says, your splant snowball beetle and fat Angies have killed it for me this season. So um, he likes your flies. <laughs> I, I just had some snowball beetles uh, today. I've restocked the bin, so that's one of my favorites too. Oh, there you go. Okay. Um, that's actually a Dennis Collier fly, so, so I can't take credit for that one. Oh, okay, okay. Um, let's see here. Um, what do you consider, this is from Paul Bristow in, in the UK. Uh, he says, what do you consider the three most important triggers when tying a streamer? Ooh, uh, you know, where, well, it, so I'm going to say sink rate, I guess is how I'm going to cut that to the chase is, you know, sink rate, and, and these are not in any particular order, but sink rate, uh, meaning the fly gets to where it needs to be in the water column, um, whether that is slow or fast. So the sink rate of the fly, the, the overall size of the fly, and again, that's whether it's big or small. And uh, I won't even say the general profile, um, except from the standpoint of how that affects sink rate. You know, I find very often when fish are on a streamer bite, they'll eat a lot of different streamers. And I, you know, I'm known to, like when fish are really on a bite, I'll change flies a lot just to see what they won't eat. Um, and, and very often it has to be something that, that is entirely different. You know, it doesn't, doesn't sink the same way or swim the same way. So um, I'll vary things up and, and kind of see what won't work rather than see what else, we, you know, what I could catch the most on. Um, but, you know, the, the pieces of it, you know, the sink rate, the color can certainly be a factor. You know, we talked about that, and that's, you know, day-to-day -day whim. But, the, yeah, the sink rate, the overall profile, and the color. You know, color probably... Uh, you know, it's probably closer to the front of that list than the end. It, it's, that seems to be more important than, uh, um, you know, the overall profile even. You know, if, you, if you've got uh, muddy water, a black-colored fly is probably going to work better, whether it's big or small or slow-sinking or fast-sinking, than a yellow-colored fly. So color is, is certainly a factor, maybe closer to the front of that list that I'm letting on. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, 
This is a good one. Tom Meyer, Wild Rose, Wisconsin. He says, the popular streamer fly in my area, central Wisconsin, is called a bad hair day, which is tied using craft fur. I have a hard time getting my craft fur to lie properly on the hook and look right. Could you provide any tips on tying craft fur that would help? Right up your alley. Um, I'm not familiar with that fly, so it depends on depends on what's being done with it. You know, craft fur is uh, stuffed animal hair. You know, it's like you know the 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 lion you won at the state fair when you you know throwing the the baseball at the milk bottles. You know, that mane was made out of craft fur, so it's a, a synthetic hair. You know, that's pretty wispy and is you know frankly a little hard to work with to get a volume of it enough to kind of create a fly out of. So, but without seeing the fly, I'm I'm hard pressed to say. Uh, how to solve that problem? I'd, I'd have to look at the fly. So I, I'd maybe say email me at the at the shop. There's a contact form on the website, um, and in the meantime, I'll look that fly up and take a look and see if I can't offer some help. But without seeing it, it's hard for me to say. Okay. Okay. Um, let's see here. Uh, we're getting short on time. Trying to pick out some questions here. Um, there was one question because it sparked a question I have, um, which was, uh, "What's the most the strangest material you've ever tied a streamer with?" From Brian Adams in California. Oh boy! Um, all right, so I'll tell you that you know it's not going to be anything super weird, but you know, recently, I mean, in the last three years, I came across this material that's sold in the catalog. It was sold in the catalogs, and it's sort of been around for steelhead flies for a long time, called Temple Fox which, you know, it's sort of like Arctic Fox, but it's longer and it's softer and it's, um, you know, it's, a, it's, it's actually a really pretty material. And as I kind of got thinking about it one day, and I, for no apparent reason, you know, I was like, what the heck is a temple fox? And I looked it up, and it's those dogs that they eat in China. It, it's dog hair. Um, and since then, you know, which totally creeped me out, I have two dogs. I have a big white dog that I've tied Clousers out of, but he still sleeps at the end of my bed every night. So, uh, it, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it definitely creeped me out. That's a pretty weird material, and it's, you know, it's funny. It the material was pretty commonplace there for a while, and it's all but disappeared now, which I think is a good thing. But, but yeah, I'd say that's the weirdest, creepiest <laughs> material I've tied a fly, tied a streamer out of, anyway. Well, I ran across the other day. Uh, I, I think it was monkey hair. Have, have you, you know, and there was a whole uh, Facebook group dedicated to monkey hair. When I was a kid, Is that something I had a, a little pamphlet. That I've, I've never even seen it. I had a little pamphlet book when I first learned to tie when I was a kid that talked about a guy that tied flies with, he had, you know, made the tails out of monkey hair because it was super, super stiff and durable and tough. And I've never, in all my life, all my tying, you know, all my travels, I've never seen monkey hair. I think that might creep me out probably just as much, but... Uh, yeah, that that's kind of creepy. Yeah. So I, have, I have no concept of what it looks like. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, I'm just uh, I'm going out there right now. Um, yeah, silly monkey hair. Oh no, that's, that's something else. <laughs> uh, I don't know, but you <laughs> some girls hair ties, you know, so with silly monkey faces on. Uh, but I'll have to see if I can run across it. I'll, I'll send it to you because uh, uh, there's a whole Facebook group dedicated to it, um, and it, it kind of creeped me out too. I, was, I asked the yeah, guy, the, the I, I, I messaged him, and I said, "Yeah, wh where are you getting this monkey hair?" And he never responded. Monkeys, <laughs> so uh, anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but uh, 
where you know who's harvesting the monkeys that's what i was yeah where, where's the monkey so anyway. harvest yeah yeah uh they are close you know i mean not the monkeys but the chimpanzees <laughs> and bonobos are pretty close cousins so uh, you yeah, know a little worried yeah, about that yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we're we're out of time. Let's let's end it on that. Um, we've got uh, more questions, but we we covered a lot of ground. Uh, I'm happy with what we've done here, uh, Charlie. You've awesome. done a great job. So, um, uh, yeah, let's uh, let's uh, call it quits here. Um, but stick with me because we're going to give away your book and um, right a few other things here in the next few minutes, and uh, we'll finish this up. Um, so when we come back, I will be giving a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International away, plus a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal, and of course, Charlie's book, um, Tying Streamers, Essential Flies and Techniques for, for Top Patterns, uh, courtesy of Stackpole Books. So uh, hang tight, and we'll be right back, and we'll, we'll take care of those giveaways. The Bristol Bay region of southwest Alaska is home to the largest runs of wild salmon on the planet and some of the best trophy rainbow trout fishing found anywhere. Pebble mine still remains a threat in the region, and 2 million acres of federal lands may also be at risk. The entire fly fishing industry is united in this epic conservation battle. Thousands of fishermen and 31 Alaska native tribes depend on Bristol Bay every year, every day. Um, Pebble mine will poison Bristol Bay with over 10 billion tons of toxic waste, which threatens to destroy their livelihoods. U.S. Army Corps of Engineers just released their final environmental impact statement, opening the door for a permit to build Pebble Mine. The only way to stop it is to act now. Uh, and I understand that that may have been stopped, that, um, that permit now. But still, go out there, join the anglers from across the country uh, in this fight, be one of them, and visit savebristolbay.org forward slash tell President Trump. So it's savebristolbay.org forward slash tell President Trump. And there you can learn about how you can help out and voice your concern about uh, uh, this, this terrible thing that uh, we hope uh, never happens. Um, anyway, uh, just a quick reminder to everyone, before you leave the website tonight, please take a minute, give us your feedback about the show. You can find a link on our homepage in the section under tonight's show that says, what did you think of the show? Just click on that, leave your comments. We'd really appreciate it. So now we'll give away a few prizes. Uh, the winners for the drawings are randomly selected from our show's registration database. And um, uh, if you didn't register for tonight's show, it's too late now, but make sure you do for the next show, and maybe you'll win one of these great prizes. If you are the lucky winner, we'll contact you after the show to provide you with the information on how to receive your prize. So first thing we're going to give away is a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International. And to learn more about FFI, go to flyfishersinternational.org. If you don't win tonight, go join anyway. It's a great organization to support, and they have all kinds of conservation efforts uh, that they, they have in play. So, uh, And it's worldwide, warm water, salt water, fresh water, whatever you want, uh, they cover it all. So check them out, flyfishersinternational.org. And uh, fire up the database here, and our selection is Gary uh, Brower, Gary Brower in Colorado. So Gary, got yourself a membership to FFI. So congratulations, and uh, know you'll enjoy that. And we'll also give away here a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal, which you can learn more about at amatobooks.com, and they have books and periodicals, uh, so much on fly fishing. So check them out as well. Uh, and our winner for that is uh, Dave 
Tefetelar, I guess it is, in Georgia. So uh, Dave, hope you enjoy that uh, magazine subscription as well. Uh, congratulations to you, uh, and thanks for playing. Uh, so, and now we'll give away Charlie's book, Tying Streamers. And um, we have, let's see here, i got to clear my queue here. So the way that you do this is you answer this question on our homepage in the same text box that you've been asking questions uh, in during the show. You put in your name, your location, and uh, your answer to the question. The first person that gets the right answers, and I'll check with Charlie to make sure we got the right answers, will be um, uh, the winner. So um, we have we had a question earlier about um, uh, the top uh, materials that. Charlie was using uh, for streamers and uh, you know his favorite tying materials so he listed off about five of those materials why don't you give me two of those materials and you'll get yourself uh, Charlie's book so uh, these were Charlie's listing off his favorite streamer materials so okay Sorry, folks, we still got some questions coming in, but uh, we can only get so many done. Um, let's see. Um, I don't think one of these, I'll run this by you, Charlie. Uh, polar fiber and mallard flank. I think the polar fiber was, but I don't think it was mallard. mallard, mallard was flank was, yeah, mallard flank was in there for sure. Oh, it was. Okay. Well, uh, Dave Dillon, you just got yourself a copy of uh, Charlie's book. So the first answer that came in was was right, and uh, uh, and then uh, there's many more coming in. <laughs> so uh, uh, Dave was was hot on the keyboard there, and uh, so Dave, send me your um, uh, address in the uh, in the same way that you just sent me your answer and we'll get that uh, book sent to you from Stackpole Books. So give it a couple weeks, but we'll, uh, we'll get that going for you, and enjoy. I know you will. And uh, it's a great book, and you'll learn a lot from it. So anyway, that's that. We got that done. Um, uh, Charlie, thanks so much for being on the show tonight again with me. I appreciate your time and your effort, and um, uh, we had a kind of a false start last week, but that's fine. We got her done this week <laughs> and, and in good order. So uh, thanks again for uh, joining me. You betcha, Roger. I appreciate you having me anytime. Okay, thank you. Uh, hopefully you've all found the podcast archive on our website. If you go up to the top line uh, menu and see podcast archive, go up there, click on that, and do a search. Do a search about anything you want to learn about fly fishing, and you'll probably find a podcast we've done. We've done over 315 of them. I've interviewed over 200 people over the years. So uh, there's just a wealth of material out there. Go check it out. Uh, our next broadcast will be next week, um, uh, September 16th, 7 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Eastern Time. And on that show, I'm going to interview Spencer Seam. And our topic will, for the show will be New Mexico's trout waters. Uh, Spencer has been guiding in New Mexico since 1995 and calls the Cimarron uh, River, Rio Grande, and, and Castilla Creek and Ute Creek his home waters. So listen in to hear where and when to come to this per, uh, picture-perfect area and find out how to best fish these mountain waters. I'd like to thank Fly Fishers International, Amato Books, Douglas Outdoors, Baja Fly Fishing, 
Front Range Watermaster for sponsoring our show tonight. And don't forget to visit our website at askaboutflyfishing.com and make sure you're signed up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing.